You're listening to the Outfitter Pros Podcast, the show for outdoor enthusiasts by outdoor enthusiasts. On the show, we speak with outfitter owners and outdoor professionals across North America and hear their stories of turning their passion into a profession. Whether you've been in the outdoor industry for years, are thinking of pursuing your own passion as a profession, or simply want to discover new outfitters for your next adventure, this is the show for you. Moose, and welcome to the Outfitter Pros Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, Paul. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me along. <laughs> well, man, it's my uh, my pleasure to to have you here today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, you know, there's there's been a few episodes that we've recorded um, that they kind of fall into the same category as what our conversation is going to be. While you are not an outfitter yourself, uh, what you do serves the outfitter industry and it serves the outdoor industry. And so I think that's something that is valuable to share to our audience. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of dive in and and hear about what you do and and how it's uh, just impacting the, the outdoor industry as a, as a whole. Um, but before we get moving in that direction, I just want to hear a little bit about your, your past uh, and hear a little bit about, you know, how did you, how did you become this, this outdoor ad adventurous guy like when did that begin i got really lucky growing up in england that my family did a lot of outdoor stuff hiking and being on the water my dad built a boat in the backyard one time and uh used it on a local lake uh <laughs> and that was that was a great introduction to actually independence mm. uh out on the water so we were sailing a little boat called the Mirror Dinghy that was designed to fit on top of a Mini. It was a national competition. So if you know the size of a Mini, you can imagine how small this boat is. Wow. And then through time, I ended up going on survival camps and being in the outdoors and then realized at some point you could make a career out of it. And that then tiered more global travel. So spending time in Europe as a canoe guide ending up in Southern Africa at one point, working on a, a big fishery and, and living out in the Kalahari wow. in Australia, but spending a huge amount of time in North, in North America, where the ability to have a well-paid career was a lot more achievable than in other mm. countries. Yeah. So did you, did you get an education for this? I mean, did, how did you kind of stumble into the industry? I think a lot of, a lot of us take one of two routes, right? One, uh, some of us will go to college and pursue an outdoor education uh, degree or an outdoor recreation degree, uh, or some of us just kind of launch in and just become a guide and get the get our our education, uh, you know, in our experience, doing what we're actually, um, you know, guiding for or whatever. And so wh what was your kind of route for that? Uh, really bad grades at high school with my route and and I was not anticipated to go to college and so I went and got a job actually on a big fishery near where I lived on a uh, trout fishery and that was my first time I'd really worked in my life to tell you the truth at 18. Wow. And then it turned out that I had kind of some grades and I ended up using that experience and sport to get to college and ended up doing an environmental science degree. Okay. And that that was a good complement to an, a lot of outdoor activity. But very early on, I also recognized as I started getting into guiding and outdoor education, 
to get credibility from mainstream educators, I mm. needed to get a more formal qualification. So I went back and trained as a classroom teacher at 24 wow. and spent a year getting that certification. And that proved to be really pivotal in my progression with an outdoor ed because you, you have a better understanding of where kids and clients are coming mm. from. And also I had a better understanding of pedagogy. I, I understood how to be a better teacher. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. And I think too, especially as you, you're talking about traveling around the world and just the, the education that you can get from, from in that regard, uh, in and of itself, right. Of experiencing different cultures and seeing how different people and different cultures are utilizing the outdoors and what that impact looks like in their community versus what it looks like in North America, per se. I, I think a lot of, I, I was never one of those people who traveled to go and take a photograph in front of something really famous. <laughs> I was always interested in people and being mm. in one place and getting to know that place. And that exposes you very quickly to the, the inner circle of an experience. You mm. go beyond just being a tourist and becoming a community member is critical to, to that deeper understanding of, of place. And I, yeah. I feel privileged that that, uh, that I that I had that uh, insight early on because that's been the pursuit uh, of being in the outdoors is about sharing. It isn't mm. about single moments. It's about having the depth of experience and the depth of connection to share more than just a passing vision of what a place is. Mm. I love that that idea of sharing, and and that's one of my favorite things about the outdoor industry as well is just the the community uh, aspect of it, and how we you know people of different cultures, of different colors, of different backgrounds, they can come together and and have this shared common experience, um, and and there's this growing aspect to that where it brings you together, uh, you know, and so that's that's one of my favorite things about. Uh, about being outdoors and, and sharing that with people. And one of, one of my hopes is that we can pass that, that as, as stewards, uh, good stewards of our environment, we can pass, um, we can pass this passion, um, but also the, um, the sustainable nature onto the next generation so that we can keep this, uh, we can keep having these wild places that we go and can explore and recreate in um, and, and grow in really we we have far more in common with each other than we let ourselves to believe absolutely there are far more it's more, far more commonality <laughs> yeah. and and public lands needs a common vision and mm. so all of those outdoor recreation people benefit from access so yeah. whether you're you're hunting and doing a sustainable hunt and you're doing it on a bike uh you have you you're in, you have commonality with the mountain bike community and if right. the mountain bike community has commonality with with a river community because the shuttle routes are fantastic riding routes right. and all of this idea that we're we're at odds actually we're a very powerful lobby for protecting access protecting resources and allowing multiple users to have their own interpretation of use that, that are actually more complementary than contrasting. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about just the, 
as you traveled to, you said you were in Africa uh, or South Africa for a little while. Uh, you've been all around the globe, um, guiding, doing different things in the outdoor industry. I mean, what was, were you doing the same kind of work in each of those places or like, what did that look like for you? Because I imagine that, you know, if you're doing different work in each of these places, that's really helping round out who you are today. And so I just want to hear a little bit about, you know, what were some of those, and I'm sure you've had hundreds and thousands of meaningful experiences in each of those places, but what are just a, a few that come to the top of your mind when you think about, yeah, this was something that was really impactful in shaping me to who I am today. I was a river guide and I managed a beach concession in the South of France. And wow. that was this anarchic chaotic early point of my development where there weren't a lot of adults in the room and yet mm. we ran reasonably safe programs and learned a lot on the fly that was very defining to be in a place with a second language and trying to figure out how to get 50 guests down a river in 25 boats mm. or trying to figure out how to work beach concessions and run a uh, a, a sailing and canoe program that that that's was uh the herding cats moment mm. of, of figuring out well how do i do group management and then that transferred into far more risky pieces whether it's first descents in australia and trying to figure out how to work in the bush as a solo instructor with large groups uh, and then getting to africa it's just a different landscape africa doesn't scare me wildlife wildlife wise as much as alaska alaska is a lot more unpredictable with grizzly wow. than anything i encountered in africa there's being being in that landscape has it pulls you down to a very basic level of survival <laughs> and wow. awareness and i like that the all those pieces conspire to make me a generalist I'm not the greatest guide, but I've got a lot of good stories. I'm not the greatest boater, but I've done a lot of rivers. Uh, I'm not the greatest climber, but I've done a lot of peaks. Mm. It's it, not being non-specialist around a broad range of experiences ultimately gives you a lot to draw from to guarantee the experiences or uh, activities are managed safely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think there's there is a lot of value in not being kind of a specialist in in one thing because all of a sudden you you become very ignorant because of your lack of experience in in other areas because you've never been in in uh in those kind of environments. And so the fact that you've experienced a multitude of these different environments I I think really is good and beneficial for the role that you have today because you have an understanding and a knowledge of all of these different um, kind of outdoor activities and the dangers, the inherent dangers that uh, are there, but also the scenarios of how do we kind of, you know, have some risk management uh, with these other areas as well. Um, and, and once you actually train, once you have that generalist view, it gives you a lot of opportunities. If, if you just, if you're just involved in ski management, ski resort management, and that's what you're going to spend 15 years doing, there are some transferable skills out of that in management, but it's a pretty narrow focus. And I think we all benefit from having a generalist part of development early on. Sure. 
because when your knees hurt or you have an injury or you start having a family and you can't be out on the trail 200 days a year, you're not, you're not lost at that moment. You actually have thought ahead and seen how you can adapt your skills to what, what could be a job that you never anticipated doing. Sure. Sure. So, so all of these different experiences being a guide and in, in multiple continents, um, how is that, how has that kind of transferred to what you, what you do today? So why don't, why don't you tell uh, everyone that's listening just uh, what you do now? So, so my main job right now is I'm the senior project director for an environmental education program that's building a $50 million 224-bed uh, campus in Yosemite National Park. Wow. But as part of that, I work with the Park Service in Search and Rescue, predominantly in Swiftwater Rescue, where I'm a Rescue 3 instructor and help to coordinate the rescue and recovery team that we run in Yosemite. And I also run the family liaison program, which is the person who interfaces with a family when we're doing a search or a recovery to make sure they're getting up-to-date information, also mm. to backfeed information incident command that might be useful on the response. Wow. Yeah. And so having, having those different things, you've got a lot on your plate, Moose. <laughs> that sounds like a lot going on. Um, as you think about the different avenues or the different aspects of of what you do and how you are in charge of the family liaison um, program and training that with doing swift water rescue training or really just a search and rescue training um, for uh, the the national park there and, and then building this camp as well you know what are what are some challenges that you've faced as you've kind of launched into this position in in this work that you're doing, what are some challenges that you've faced in trying to kind of rise to that level um, of being able to to do this well and manage these things well? I, I think it, I, I work really hard. I don't often achieve it in being having humility. The <laughs> idea that you're part of an overall machine, you're not mm. the the core of the machine, and that when you actually pull yourself out as the focus, you can achieve a lot more. So it's putting people in positions to do their jobs and, and manage them effectively uh, and trust them to do it is, is a key part of that. Mm. And coming from a background in solo instructing where you're carrying the entire load for extended periods of time, that's, that's a hard thing you have to retrain yourself to, to let go a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think you, you, you just... You grab opportunities, but you don't own opportunities, if that makes sense. The idea sure. that you, I'm always looking for new things to, to try and experience, to build out my compendium, mm. but it, it, isn't, it isn't a collection. It isn't something where you're like, oh, got to do that, got to do this, got to do that. You, you let some things happen organically and let things build on each other. Sure. So... As you as you think about your your responsibilities and, and the role that you play, and even hearing as you're building out this in this uh, this environmental this education program, and education is a big part of of what you do, right? As far as the swift water training, or it's the search and rescue training, the family liaison officer training, you know, educating others is a is a big part of of the role that you play. 
And so why, why do you think that, why do you think that that's important for, uh, for what you do to be a good educator? Like that may not, let me no, see. It's yeah. a really good question because I, I think we're a distillation of all the people who came before us and it's what you pass on. If, if we all act as educators and giving people skills or mm. perspectives or we engage them in a position where they can learn from rather than just being told what to do, they're allowed mm. to experience it and figure out how it works for them. That's a real gift. And I, I tried to tackle all of my interactions as an, edu as an educator because you read the crowd, you try to figure out where your students are at or your families are at, and you give the material in a way that they can digest it. So when a student is failing or a guest is having a hard time, as a guide or an educator, we need to look at what we're doing because we might be the problem. <laughs> it it's might true. not be them. It's the way I'm giving information or the way that I'm interacting. And I think, again, if you've been guiding for a long time, you are stuck in your ways unless you are really honest about being open to new ways of doing mm. stuff or working with a new client group or working with a more diverse audience you right. we have to adapt and it it shouldn't be scary it should be exciting right right and i and i love i love too how you know because you're you're not just providing you know uh search and rescue training for just the park service like the, your or, or or its employees right you're you also are providing swift water rescue training for for outfitters and for guides that are coming in that are doing this that are uh you know operating as a business that are doing these things right and i, and I think that how how cool that that part is because as guides we're inevitably going to come across some messed up scenarios right I, things aren't always going to go perfect right and we yeah. wish that they would but there's going to be times where you encounter a situation that has not went the way that you wanted it to go and to be prepared for that not just physically but mentally i think being mentally prepared is almost more important than being physically prepared for that because of it, it plays into the physicality of how you respond right yeah because if you come guides or educators who are out in the field you're often the first line of watching somebody else's emergency play out mm -hmm. and it can either become your drama where you're like ah I'm freaking out or you can take it down to a math story problem and i think mm -hmm. it becomes it becomes more clinical at that point as you imagine you you manage the person's emotions they might have seen this accident or they might be part of the accident so you're taking that emotional load and then you're figuring out how to fix the rest of it in a in a cooler manner and i mm. think that mental aspect of actually stepping back from the emotional piece is the piece that will allow you potentially to have a better outcome yeah. and we have the benefit of experience there's a big difference between an inner tuber drinking five or six beers and bobbing down the river and having an accident and happening to bump into a raft group with a camera person who's in a kayak who knows how to grab them on the bat loop and bring them to the shore. Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody has wilderness first responder who can start doing compressions and get CPR going. That's the beauty of what we do is we're actually this amazing safety net. And it's mm -hmm. also calling out inappropriate behavior before it happens. Mm -hmm. I think back to an instant. I remember an incident a long time ago when I was on a river, we used to do a big jump. It's like 38 feet. We do with the guests. It's, I don't think you do it now. It's hideously dangerous. 
and you would see drunk people sort of going up to do the jump and you know that they wouldn't hit it right or they might not get far enough out but i was young and i didn't feel like going hey this probably isn't the best idea and we'd watch these disasters play out and we would mm. go and get people and it's it's intervention that's the important part because a really bad accident out there could have a life-changing injury to someone mm. and then there's an emotional load if they lose that person for the family so as guides, I don't think we should be shy when the opportunity provides to actually step in and, and, and carefully coach somebody through probably not making the decision they were going to make. Yeah. Yeah. I, Social I, media, I, like I think, encourages people to do these bridge jumps. Social sure. media encourages bigger swing jumps and it becomes a norm, but it doesn't reduce the risk. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. I, I and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that when you see accidents uh, in the wilderness or on trips, you know, like we we guide, um, the two biggest and most common factors are lack of knowledge is one. And two, the second is alcohol or being under the influence of, yeah. uh, of something, right? Some substance. And most commonly, those are paired together, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. And I can remember one time, uh, 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 there was these guys we were getting ready to put in on Browns Canyon of the, of the Arkansas river in Colorado. And, uh, uh, a friend of mine, a guide friend of mine, there were these two, two guys that had been drinking and they had one of those little blow up rafts from Walmart. Uh, and they were going to go down this class three river with this little blow up raft and some little paddles. And they were wearing like blue jeans and it was, it was uh, it was not going to be good. We were going to be pulling them from the river at some point. And he went over there and he said, oh, it's a nice boat. He got there and they were like, yeah, yeah, we're excited. And then he just took his knife out of his PFD and just popped the, <laughs> popped the boat and then just went back and we went on our way and they were pissed, but they didn't die. So that was that was the good thing. <laughs> so I had something similar. I was on a on a run here locally. It's a class four run. And these, we went through in our boats and these guys just jumped in behind us on a, on a single chamber raft and they bobbed through without life jackets. And a couple of times we, we stopped them and said, you know, this river's going to get a lot, lot worse. And we got to the big drop, the big class four. And I remember saying to them, how scared have you been up until now? And they went, oh, we're really scared. And I said, well, take it up by an order magnitude of 10. That's this next rapid. And we were right there with all our gear on. They had no gear and they got out and looked. And I remember them taking their boat and walking around the rapid and thinking, oh, that's that's great. Unfortunately, they then floated through the rest of the rapid, which is also class four. They were ahead of us at that point. So we were clearing up. But mm. intervention's never a bad thing, whether it's a sharp, pointy knife or right. talking about fear, right. like talking about well, where are you at? Rather than telling them what to do, where are you at? Ask them the question, engage them in some dialogue mm. so they have control and then give them binary choices, yeses and noes. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that as, as you are training, you know, professional search and rescue workers or you're training professional guides uh, that are, that are going to possibly encounter things like this. How do you how do you go about that? Like what you were just talking about, even diffusing the situation. Uh, what does that process look like for you as you're equipping others to kind of diffuse the situation? Well, for swift water, I'm like never be in the water. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. <laughs> if you're the rescuer, you're on the bank and you're never yeah. wet. 
brilliant swift water rescue because you've, mm -hmm. you've reduced all of that. And it's also just talking with people. If someone is above the surface saying, I can't swim, I can't breathe, and they're having an animated conversation with you, they can swim and they can talk, they can breathe, they're fine. Absolutely. So it's also analyzing exactly what's going on and slowing down. A lot of what I teach is slow down. Unless somebody is in the water, face down, this is not an emergency. Mm. If they're holding onto a tree and they're having a hard time, it's not quite as big an emergency as floating off the back unconscious. Right. So I talk a lot about slowing down, taking a deep breath, analyzing, coming up with a plan that everybody understands, doing it graphically in the sand on the side of the river. So they, they, everybody knows what their part is to play. 30 seconds, 40 seconds placed on that is going to be really helpful when you cross the river and you can't talk to each other and your radio right. is falling in the water. So I talk a lot about slowing down. Mm. And also, water's a funny thing. Water, disaster happens real quick. And when you see these amazing rescues that people do in kayak pens and what have you, those are normally very experienced boaters who've got their systems down. They really don't have to explain what's going on. It's muscle memory. And the ones that you might see on the TV from downtown Atlanta, and there's a bunch of flooding, it's professional responders who might not have as much experience in the water who are then getting in trouble because mm. they didn't slow down. They're in that hero response that clouds everything. Right. And you either have a great story or you have a funeral service. Right. And I don't want any of my responders to have a funeral service. Yeah. I've, I've been there where people have, have died in the line of duty and it's a tragedy. And they, they were doing incredibly brave things and mm -hmm. they were doing it on a calculated level. Um, but I would never want somebody to go there because they wanted to be a hero. It's, that's not a reason to die. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest part, right? When your adrenaline is, is pumping like that, you know, and you're trying to just, because time is of the essence. And I think a lot of people, if they are un uneducated, uh, or have a, a lack of experience can move too fast. There is a, a, such a thing as moving too fast. And I love what you said is just taking a moment to pause and to spend one minute or 40, 30, 40 seconds, a minute of just coming up with a plan, drawing it in the sand and getting your composure and then acting and how, how important that is. And, and that could even in and of itself be the difference in a rescue or a recovery and i think there's that point where you look at you go what is your leadership style now if your leadership style is a bunch of jokes and shouting at people you need to diversify it mm. there's a place for shouting at people being like okay we're gonna come on presence here but there's a place when you're in the water just quietly talking to someone and being like you're going to be okay we're right here I'm right with you when you come in this direction that it, it your adrenaline has to come down to a point where you can look them in the eye and quietly give confidence. And in that moment, have mm -hmm. them buy into what they're going to do because that's right. going to protect you and the other person. Right. Yeah. And I love just how essential communication is to this, right. Is just, just speaking instead of the, the yelling, the screaming, just having a calm demeanor and speaking to people and reassuring them. They need the reassurance, right? Because in those moments, they're feeling all kinds of emotions of fear and uncertainty and just all of all of these things that are gripping them. And you can be the one that kind of brings the 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 
the calming factor to that. If they see that you're calm, well, that has a way of rubbing off on people. And, and I think that that's even kind of transitioning into your, your, your family liaison training, uh, how important that is for someone to gain their own composure and emotions before they're going to go to someone to try to help them do the same thing. And the biggest part of communication is simply listening. It's getting to a point where you're hearing somebody and say, what is going on? And mm. you listen and you engage and you show that you're responding in, a, in an appropriate manner. That's where you build in that immediate, that accelerated moment, the bonds of trust to actually mm. be able to help people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's pretty clear to, as, you, as I just hear you speaking and talking about these things, uh, just where your passion lies within training people to uh, to face these scenarios with with competence, but also confidence, right? And and equipping them in a manner to do so, especially in situations where they may have just lost, you know, somebody has just lost someone uh, on the river or in the mountains. And as a guide, how do we deal with that? How do we become that family liaison? Um, officer that is going to, or, or even if we're not in the position of the, the FLO, but we're just a, a bystander or a guide that has been on this trip, how important it is for us to be trained in how to deal with this person in their grief and in their, their, um, their, just their fear and, and all of their feelings. You can't so, fix, you can't fix them. No, but you could be, you could be human. Yeah. And I think in a world that's scared of liability, People are like, well, you got, you got to be careful what you say. I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to be careful about what you listen to. Mm. And if they're going to, if you've done something terribly wrong, you're going to be litigated. If you've done everything you could and you come out as a nice, kind person who listened during this, this tragedy, that will show up in mm. testimony. And families may be more inclined to, to be less pursued on a litigation level because they were treated with respect. Right. And I, I, I just encourage people to be human. When the, when it, when the nightmare happens, loss is isolating. And if mm. you as a guide are uncomfortable and you step back, you're like, oh, I didn't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. You just have to sit next to somebody and mm. be, be there and make eye contact and hold their hand mm. and listen to them and nod your head, and repeat back what they said and be human. Mm. That's power. That's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good. Now, in your experience, because you train like outfitter owners and you train their guides in in these very things, and so have you had any experiences when you're when you're training guides um, to do this? Have, have you seen have you seen them really like catch that moment where they maybe not didn't understand it before? Like, what what has that been like as far as when you're oh, educating yeah. these guys, yeah. I've I've had people ring me up or send me a message and say, I just did one, it went great. It was an awful <laughs> situation, but I, I, I popped the book open and I, I did that thing and this, and I scripted it out and it made such a difference. I had an organization. So you, when you, when you realize that there is, there's a progression in the way that people deal with loss and mm. that we're in there at a very fundamental level, giving them structure in a chaotic world. Uh, yeah, people start to see its value. 
Mm. And I, I think there's a lot of different groups out there trying to figure out the best way to work. And sometimes it's cross-jurisdictional because of the law enforcement piece. But early on, guides are at the front. And it, a lot of it is a lot more simple than we think. Think mm. about the way that you, you deal with your friends or your family members when tragedy strikes. That's all it is. Right. In that moment, your guest is your family. Mm. And you're, you're just trying to be there. However incompetent you feel. And, oh, I don't know if I said the right thing. You said something. Mm. And you were present. And it, it, the, the, a lot of times at that moment of loss, people are looking around and they want a witness. Mm. And you're a witness in that moment. And it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And when you do it and, it, and you, you witness how it helps people, it, it's a very fulfilling thing. It, mm. it gets to a point where your reward is realizing in that moment that they were tested, you were there to try and help them through it. You aren't going to fix it. You aren't going to give them closure. You're just going to make sure they're not alone. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I, and I think I, I typically kind of segment our audience into three different categories, people who are outfitter owners, people who are, are running you know, guided adventures, um, people who are looking for their next outfitter or to take their next guided adventure, and then people who have yet to take the leap of faith into starting their own um, outfitter business or tour operator business. And I think even like what we've just been talking about here, it 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 kind of it's goes across the entire spectrum, right? It it's applicable to all three of those categories of people. Because in a moment, I'm not just an outfitter owner, or I'm not just a participant. I'm a human being. I love how what you said about this. Like I'm a human being, and I just need to be a human being. And it's super important in how we do that. And so, what is your reason behind doing what you do? I think you know if you're going to have any kind of longevity in any kind of industry, but if you're going to have longevity in the outdoor industry in the outdoor education sector of what you do and providing training, you need to have some kind of a, a rudder that is, that is steering yeah. you in, in, in forward and in, in the direction that you want to be going. So what that is your why. So what is your why behind doing what you do? Uh, I think it's meaningful. Mm. I like the idea of having people be safe out there and be, be safe emotionally with other people. And even though I deal with a lot of really heavier stuff like recovery and death, strangely, there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of uh, training, even with really heavy stuff or technical stuff. I, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, it's fun. It's like, it, it's a really fulfilling piece to hear other people's ideas or opinions or to challenge the way you do things. And the outdoors is a really healing place. I, I did a, a program for Outward Bound, which is an outdoor educator down in Florida last year with a group of veterans out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's the first time I taught in, in the Glades for 30 years. Mm. And it was an amazingly powerful experience for me outside of what the veterans experienced um, because it was being in this beautiful place with a group of, of like-minded people who are trying to find ways to have conversations maybe they can't have at home mm. and be safe and what a great place to do it so the 
the other why is you get to go to amazing places and see the natural world at its best. And mm -hmm. sometimes that simple action of seeing dolphins driving mullet up the beach and 12 people standing there in silence, marveling at it for 10 minutes, mm. that, that speaks a lot more powerfully than sitting in a, com in a circle and processing something. Yeah. It's, it's getting in touch with that nat natural rhythm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, being, being in the outdoors it, is being touched by the natural world is a, is a powerful healer. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, and I think it, it has a lot to do with that, that aspect of extending ourselves past what's comfortable, right? Because in, in the wild, there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable, especially, you know, when you're, when you're, if you're on the trail for multiple days or you're out backpacking for a week, you're going to be uncomfortable at some point, whether it's the weather, whether it's just, you're tired of being eaten by mosquitoes, or it's some kind of scary situation that you encounter. Those are, those are really opportunities. I think for us to grow because you can't grow if you're comfortable. The only place you can grow from is a place of being challenged and that's what I love about about the outdoors and even even the challenge that that you step into and that you train others to step into of how do you address loss how do you address scary situations that's a challenge and therefore it's a growing opportunity because of it and I just I love I love that you get to facilitate that that's really that's really cool and encouraging uh, and 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 I think as we get older, we get more set in our ways. And unless we're prepared to continue growing, life is going to get pretty dull. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. they, uh, my dad, when he retired in his 50s or 60s, went back to high school and did his entrance exams that we did at 16 and 18, his kids. And then he went to art school and apprenticed himself to an artist when he was in his wow. 60s and 70s. And he just kept growing. And I, I think that that's totally inspiring mm. on as a lifelong learner because otherwise it's stale and it's stale for guy for your guests it's stale yeah. for students it's li life shouldn't be in stasis mm. it, it should always be moving yeah now you, you're in yosemite national park and you're so you're doing this for i guess i assume the the, the park service there within yosemite but do you do you offer all of this training kind of on a, on a, on a nationwide or even a global scale or how does yeah, that work? I, I work through the national park service and we try to open up trainings that we run, whether on the East coast and smoky mountains national park, I'll be up in Yellowstone and Canyonlands doing some training. And we work typically with partnering groups around the national park to bring wow. outdoor people in. So whether it's sheriff's department, outfitters, ski industry and Tetons is a good example. We brought people in from Jackson hole resort to be wow. part of the overall training with, with family liaison to broaden the understanding and to mm. share that lesson. Yeah. So if, if you're listening right now, if you're an, if you're an outfitter and you're running rafting trips or no matter what kind of trips you're running, uh, you are taking guests into a wild place and there is opportunity for risks and, and things to happen there. Um, man, I, I really think that it would be valuable for, for you to, contact moose and we're going to get to that in a little bit but so as these these outfitters how, how do they find out about these trainings that are going on so typically i'll put something up on social media to say i'm, I'm in a certain place and then I ask them to reach out to the national park 
the national park targets specific providers in and around their park units typically okay and then i've also got an online class now that i'm just about to launch it's a complement to the book so it actually gives people a chance to listen to what i'm saying without having to track across the country and, reduce, and they reduce their carbon footprint um, <laughs> yeah. and it's a bit more accessible like that and then i'm always available by email or on the phone so i do complimentary classes for people or groups wow. uh, pretty regularly with just an hour, an hour, 30 minute presentation and 30 minutes of questions. And I try to make sure that we're, we're just broadening it. It's, mm. this is a, the beauty of coming through COVID was this is the ability to have higher level mm. conversations uh, through the compute computer. And so let's take advantage of it and make it affordable and make it, uh, accessible because we don't own knowledge. Our job is just to share it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. So, if you could, if we're thinking about this, these kind of three um, audience members, these segmented audience members that we would that were that are listening right now, um, if you could encourage the one that is maybe they've not launched their business yet, they've not. Um, taking that that step, that leap of faith to open their guiding or their outfit or business, what would you tell them as someone who has pursued a passion and turned it into a profession? What would you tell that person? Uh, how would you encourage them? I would say it's going to be really hard work at the start and don't be afraid of it. I'd be realistic in my goals. Mm. And not try to change the world immediately at the world of drafting of, of, of drafting and fly fishing and and reach out to your peer group for advice. The best mm. people out there uh, like to talk about their businesses and they like to share information. They like to share about what they do well. They're sometimes more hesitant about what they do badly. But <laughs> there's a lot of knowledge that's there that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. And I, mm. I think sometimes with new businesses, you, you want to do it so radically different and actually 80% of it's the same. Mm -hmm. And so learn about that 80%. And so it, the bit I always say to people is be prepared to be an, a really good apprentice mm -hmm. is you, in an accelerated world where we're, we're getting, we don't get more experience, but we get higher levels of competency in a way we get more certificates. We get things faster that, that appear to say that we know what we're doing nothing replaces experience so my best my best apprenticeship was at australian outward bound where one of my first jobs was doing food packing and then stitching a full-length zipper into a sleeping bag and that prepared me for stitching the floor of a raft that mm -hmm. we split in a remote setting that the only way we could repair it was stitching it and then gluing it and wow. so it, all of those pieces add up. So don't be afraid to be an apprentice. Don't be afraid to be the person who learns how to drive that bus and do really good uh, commentaries to a bunch of guests at, mm -hmm. the, at the start or the end of their trip, because that stands you in really good stead for 20 years time when you're managing and mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to get people to give that part of the trip a real iconic status where people are just jazzed about getting on the water. Mm. It's, don't be too specialist and and don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. I love that. Uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. There, there's been this this common theme uh, as I've spoken with each of each of my guests, uh, and it's always this theme of someone who 
took them under their wing and kind of apprenticed them, right? And walked with them and 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 just gave to them. Uh, and so it's it's this running kind of affirmation when I hear things like that. It's like, yep, that's that is something that you need to do. Find somebody that you can sit under and learn from how important it is. Yeah. I had a landlord uh couple at college who took me under their wing. Wow. And they taught me so much when I was at college. And one of the things I had to do was door-to-door sales. I was a door-to-door salesman for that guy's greenhouse and conservatory business. So wow. going around neighborhoods and knocking on people's doors, saying, oh, would you like to buy this? Like, it was, it, it was a great introduction to, mm-hmm. my dad was a salesman, but actually practical selling. And it was all about communication. And what those two taught me was that hard of having a conversation and mm-hmm. making it entertaining and enjoying and sharing. Uh, yeah, you... you don't be afraid to find that person who's who's the master craftsman yeah yeah i love it and then after all of that you need to find moose and take some of his training yeah uh. <laughs> maybe you'll find someone like find somebody who you're training if you if you find yourself rolling your eyes at training opportunities you probably shouldn't mm. be doing that training that's good if you're not excited about it then don't do it mm. that's that's good. I, I like that. So Moose, man, if if people want to find out more about you uh, and 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 learn about what you're doing and how, how do they get a hold of you? How can they how can they learn more about you? So I'm at uh, www.moosemutlow.com. I'm on Instagram at Moose Mutlow. And I've got an Amazon author page for a couple of books I've written, Moose Mutlow, and you can put that onto Amazon. And if you don't want to go through Amazon, you can just go to a local bookstore and they'll be able to figure out uh, which books that I have uh, through the ISBNs. Wow. Uh, and then I'm pretty available. I, I like to be able to help people. I've, I've done consults during incidents or help people think through maybe what they need to be thinking about uh, that crisis or doing after action reviews. It's, mm. it's all about, and if I don't, if it's not me, I know a lot of other people who you might want to talk to. <laughs> so yeah, those are the best ways to get a hold of me. All right. Well, Moose, man, I appreciate your time today. I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, yeah, looking forward to looking forward to just following you along on your journey. Uh, and maybe, maybe someday there will be an opportunity that we could get on the river and do some things together. That would be, That'd be great. Paul, thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you, Moose. You have a good rest of your day. I will. 